0: So the first thing I'll say is just Happy New Year and Mm -hmm. welcome to the East Bay Healing Collective in 2023, Um, and I'll immediately follow that by saying I don't really believe in New Year's. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's kind of a bookkeeper's holiday, Mm -hmm. nothing meaningful about my life has changed from last week to this week, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think this whole cultural conversation around, you know, what kind of year was the last year or what kind of year will this new year be? It's about focusing on past and future. It takes us out of the present moment. And of course, all love, all healing, all fulfillment happens only in the present moment. Similarly, I'm not really a fan of this cultural idea of New Year's resolutions. we, we live in a very head-centered culture, and I think it's part of the fantasy that we can make head-level decisions that will drive meaningful life changes, you know. Um, meaningful life changes often come out of the core. They come out of what I might call the currents of transformation deep in our core, and we can learn to be in touch with those and and, you know, nurture them in some way. But the core has its own seasons, its own tides, its own rhythms. The core doesn't care at all about the calendar, you know. So, all this is to say that my Dharma talk really doesn't have anything to do with the fact that yesterday was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Um, Instead, my topic is confinement and choice. And it's funny, I think it was. I think it was last Wednesday when I was still in New Jersey, and I was thinking about what is my topic going to be, you know, and sometimes I'm I'm bouncing around a few different ideas in my head, but these words just bubbled up from somewhere within me, confinement and choice, and it was like, okay, that's the topic, I guess I have to figure out what to say about that now, <laughs> you know. Um, I'll begin by saying, I think the adult's In you think of the cohort of adults in the United States and in the developed world, we probably are the most spoiled set of adults ever to be on this planet, you know? And and I include myself in this totally. Um, We all walk around with the Internet in our pocket. Like, I mean, we take that for granted, but think about how absolutely absurd that is, you know? we we live in a world that gives us the message we can get any product we want delivered, you know, immediately or the next day. We can have any experience, you know. The only limitation is cost, really. Um a world that is so accustoms us accustoms us to getting exactly what we want, you know, I don't want this flavor or this brand, I want exactly this one, you know, this kind of thing. Um, And at least it makes me wonder, does it make it that much more challenging for us when we're stuck with something we don't want, you know? I mean, that's been a, you know, a fixture of human life, of course, that people are you know, from time immemorial have been stuck with things they don't want. But I think in other periods of history, it was more taken for granted. There's going to be a lot of things about life that you just don't want. You just have to live with it, you know, and um, it makes me wonder if we're a little less resilient in in dealing with that in our modern world. Um, So by... When I was thinking about confinement, I was thinking about any any way that we feel stuck, you know, externally stuck with, you know, whatever situation that we have in our life and we don't want it that way, you know, any way that we're internally stuck, you know. And I think one common way relating to this is through victim stories. And and that includes complaining, it it includes self-pity. You know, look how horrible my life is, I have to deal with X, you know, isn't that awful? And the thing about victim stories is they're so attractive, they're so seductive in a way, because it recreates the infantile situation you know, and think about our situation when we were one year old. When we were one year old, anything that was wrong, we could just scream bloody murder and people would magically come and make our world better, you know. It's it's a great deal. Um, And there's there's something almost like that in the ordinary act of complaining or self-pity. Like, I'm just going to stamp my feet and make noise, you know, I'm not happy, and magically someone from outside ought to come along and fix that for me, you know. And of course, there's nothing healing in that at all. There's no healing that comes through complaining. There's no healing that comes through self-pity. Um... You know, the head-centered culture, often we also we go into strategy, you know, strategizing. How can I outthink the, the problem that I don't want? You know, we get into a place, basically, where we try and outthink the first, the, the first noble truth of Buddhism, which is kind of amusing. The first noble truth of Buddhism, it's, it's stated as life is dukkha. And sometimes that's translated as life is suffering, which, which isn't the best translation. Dukkha is a more technical term. It comes from the fact that pleasure and pain are intimately wrapped up with one another and that, you know, the mind of Dukkha is one that is constantly frustrated because I'm trying to get all the pleasure toward me and push away all the pain and they're always stuck to each other, you know. And so Dukkha includes not only the, the fact of that experience but all the strategies that the mind goes through to try and... Try and outsmart Duca. So, what's a more productive way to relate to being stuck or being confined? Um, and I want to hold up the example first of all of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela spent twenty-seven years in jail, and when he got out. He wasn't in a place of self-pity and complaining, and they wasted 27 years of my life. When he came out, he was radiant, and he was a radiant leader, you know? And that really speaks to this deep work of transformation that was going on when he was imprisoned. And I think one thing that's hard to appreciate about Nelson Mandela's story, because How can I say, we know the end of the story. We know that eventually he became president of South Africa and this world-renowned leader. When he was in jail, he didn't know he was ever going to get out. He was sentenced to life in prison, you know. And most of that time, he had no idea whether he was going to die in jail or ever see the light of day again, you know. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because... How to say it? I mean, we many healthy adults have mastered the skill of delayed gratification, and what that means is, if we have to do, engage in some kind sort of sacrifice for a guaranteed payoff, well, then that's no problem. Like, yeah, sure, I'll I'll do the sacrifice to get that guaranteed payoff, you know. But that's not stuckness. Stuckness is when we're we're unhappy with something and there's no guaranteed end to it, you know. And Nelson Mandela's story, I mean, this is just a more modern, um, you know, it's a a popular figure that everyone would know, Um, but it recreates a story that has appeared again and again throughout the wisdom tradition of people being confined or people choosing a kind of confinement for themselves um, and doing the work of transformation. You know, one of the the classic stories from China is the legendary king King Wen, who was uh, imprisoned by the a tyrant. When was this? This this would have been this is more Chinese mythology. This is probably 13 or 1400 BC is the time that it would have been attributed. Um, and it said that during King Wen's quote unquote sitting in stillness, that he conceived the Yijing. You know, and so this tremendous, you know, spiritual work came out of this time in prison. And really the whole logic of, of this transformation is paradoxical, you know. It's not about trying to escape the stuckness. It's really about trying to occupy it, you know, occupy it and embrace it. Um, becoming more deeply present with it. And and it's very important to appreciate presence often mean getting out of our heads because the head is never particularly present. And the head spins off all kinds of, you know, but if I weren't stuck with this, you know. Um, and often I find at least in my own life, that that many times an external constraint or an external stuckness um, mirrors almost perfectly some kind of internal stuckness. And I, I can't necessarily magically fix the thing outside, but I can often fix the way that I'm relating to it. Um... Yeah, and how can I say, I, I mentioned before this idea of currents of transformation within us. You know, what? what is the direction in which our life is changing? You know, what is the new version of ourself that is emerging? Um, often it's threatening. Often it's uncomfortable, you know. Because when that that new version of ourselves, that deeper, more mature, more powerful wiser version of ourselves emerges means we kind of have to give up a lot of our excuses, you know. We can't play our ordinary games as much anymore, you know, and a lot of the dysfunctional things right now that we're kind of comfortable with, we'd have to step beyond. Um, Sometimes growth even has what I would call a transgressive quality. And what I mean by that is when we're growing, sometimes we're growing into places where for whatever reason we felt like we didn't have permission. You know, and permission is often often whether we feel permission or don't feel permission, that's often something held really in the, the lower two chakras. Um, you know, do I have permission to speak my true opinion, you know, do I have permission to disagree with others, you know, do I have permission to be angry, do I have permission to be sad for no reason at all, you know, or whatever, Um, you know, so sometimes when I say this transgressive quality, it's like sometimes we start to feel like we're stepping into a place where previously we weren't giving ourselves permission to go. The poet David White talks about how when we first meet the new version of ourselves, it appears as a stranger within. And our our natural tendency is to want to turn away from that stranger, you know, which I, I think is another way to say this. Um, and, of course, meditation long term meditation is you know part excellence the the most wonderful practice for helping to um, helping to nurture these transformations you know there are other you know yogic yoga and so forth um, there's another aspect of this, and i I think I'll explain this more in terms of my day job you know as you know my as a day job I'm a teacher, and in any classroom. There are those hot shot, some hotshot students who just love to answer every single question I pose, you know. And that's wonderful in a way, but you have to put some brakes on that also. There are also the class clowns that want to make a joke every five minutes, you know. And so there are lots of loud personalities in a room. But there are also those very quiet personalities, those personalities that will never make a peep until I get the loud people to shut up and create some kind of invitation them to speak you know and I find that that's an excellent metaphor for our internal world you know we're familiar with the loud voices within us we, we all know the loud voices inside our psyche what are the voices that are quiet what are the voices that are waiting for everyone else to shut up so that they can be heard you know and what kind of invitation are we making to such voices within us You know, I think part of meditation is just creating that silence so that even the the shyest, most reticent part of ourselves can speak the truth that we need to hear. So I'll say that, you know, everything about stuckness, it, it... it raises this question of, you know, what can I do, what can't I do, you know? What, uh, what what are the things that are actually in my ability to change, and what are the things that I just have to accept, you know? And um, sometimes the things that we most like to change are things that we can't change, and the things that we can change are things that we're overlooking or, or discounting, you know? So of course, this is this calls to mind the Serenity Prayer, and I'll I'll share with you. I, I think I shared it a few weeks ago. Um, I've I've thought about the Serenity Prayer for years, and I've over the years I've kind of created my own version of it. And this is the version I say every day. So I'll I'll share this now. Um, may I take deep responsibility for all the consequences of my actions, both intentional and unintentional? may i take deep responsibility for my emotional states may i take deep responsibility for everything i control and everything over which i have some kind of influence may i accept complete surrender wherever my control and influence end may i cultivate tremendous trust and acceptance about all those things over which i have no control and no influence May I relax into the deep vulnerability of human life. And between what I control and what I do not, what I influence and what I do not, may I have the wisdom, the courage, and the insight to know the difference. Mm-hmm. So I put that on the quote sheet. In fact, I'll share the quote sheet now. So first of all, I'll share it with the, the zoomies. Well, I thought I copied it. All right. All right. All right. Hold on a second. Let me, let me go back to. This is what I get all the, the distractions with the. Uh, okay. Here we go. Copy. Okay. There we go. Okay, the zoomies now have it. And for the Roomies. Here, let me just get one for myself here. Here you go. Thank you. So, speaking of Rumi, couple from Rumi to begin. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Move outside the tangle of fear-thinking. The entrance to the door to the sanctuary is inside you. Last thing we want to hear when we're all upset is that the answer is inside of us. And also this wonderful one from Rumi. Pretend the universe is rigged in your favor. <laughs> From Mr. Einstein, a human being is part of a whole, called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts, and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting our personal desires and affection to a few persons nearest us. Our task is to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and all its beauty." From Sri Nisgardatta, for whom I have tremendous respect. Between the banks of pleasure and pain the river of life flows. Only when the mind refuses to flow with life and gets stuck at the banks that it becomes a problem. By flowing with life I mean acceptance, letting come what come and go what goes desire not, fear not, observe the actual, for you are not what happens, you are to whom it happens. Ultimately, even the observer you are, even the observer you are not. You are the ultimate potentiality of which the all-embration consciousness is in manifestation and expression. That's one to ponder a bit. From Taishin Deshimaru, It's actually a wonderful book, Mokhashutu Mind. Shackling humanity to its phenomenal condition is abnormal. The crisis of contemporary civilization is due entirely to the abnormality of our lost and aimless minds. We have lost all notion of the essential. We have lost our place at the heart of the cosmos. We have forgotten our true worth. Enclosed in our egocentric minds, we have built ourselves a prison with our own hands. It is like a madman who suffers from his madness without knowing he is mad. Robert Aiken says, The Buddha and all his successors warn us against intellectual structures that confine us to an artificial environment and against concepts that smear over the living facts of things in themselves. Elie Wiesel, who spent part of his life in a concentration camp, said, For one who is indifferent Life itself is a prison. Any sense of community is external, even worse, non-existence. Thus, indifference means solitude. Those who are indifferent do not see others. They feel nothing for others and are unconcerned with what what might happen to them. They are surrounded by a great emptiness. Filled by it, in fact. They are devoid of all hope as well as imagination. In other words, devoid of any future. And, of course, one of the one of the horrifying things, really, of, of the concentration camps was reducing people to a kind of indifference. Payment Chodron said, when we protect ourselves so that we don't feel pain, that protection becomes like armor, and that arm, like armor that imprisons the softness of our heart. Deepak Chopra challenges us, every time you are tempted to react in the same old way, Ask yourself if you want to be a prisoner of the past or a pioneer of the future. Eckhart Tolle says, We depend on nature not only for our physical desire, we also need nature to show us the way home, a way out of the prison of our minds. We got lost in doing, thinking, remembering, anticipating, lost in a maze of complexity and world problems. We have forgotten what rocks, plants, and animals still know. We have forgotten how to be, to be still, to be ourselves, to be where life is here and now. A couple from David White. These are from um, seminars that he gave during the, the, at the beginning of the pandemic. All of us feel as if we're in some kind of emotional or psychological imprisonment even if it's just at the edges. Some of us feel completely imprisoned or are waiting for the world to go on. Throughout human history, there's actually been a long chronology of people who have been confined and who have taken that time to actually come down to another foundation and emerge from their exile, from their imprisonment, braver and more articulate than they were before they were removed from the world. Of course, that exactly describes Nelson Mandela. He also said, so one of the beautiful questions for each of us is, in this time of outer imprisonment, what is the central nexus of my own incarceration? Where am I being invited by this outer symmetry? What inner symmetry am I being invited into to understand my own freedom? It doesn't mean we stop moving to changing the world, but I give equal power, equal credence to this invitation from the inside to understand all the ways I oppress myself, all the ways that I refuse to have the conversation, and I try to feel it as much as possible, as Rilke had the courage to feel his whole being through a set of metal bars, and from that place I start to step out into the world again, I start to look for the star I did not know I was following. And that reference to Rilke, it's actually i I'll pause here. It's a remarkable story in the life of Rilke. Um, when Rilke was a young man and was trying to sort of get his start as a poet, um, he was, I guess he was working, I don't know if it was for, uh, some kind of journalistic thing, but he was writing monographs. And he had been assigned to r- go write a monograph on Renoir. And so we went to, uh, sorry, to uh, Rodin, the sculptor, Rodin. And he goes to Rodin's studio. And and Rodin, at this point, is like this engine of creativity. And he's, he's working on these sculptures, and he has all these assistants working, and every day it's just all this, this art being produced. And here's Rilke, like, completely stuck. Like, how do I begin being a poet? And, um he asked Rodin a couple times and Rodin kind of shrugged him off but finally at one point when he asked Rodin like, what, how do I begin You know, Rodin just said go down to the zoo go down to the zoo in the middle of Paris look at the animals and look at them until there's an animal that speaks to you and so Rilke went down to the zoo and he saw a panther and this panther was, you know, 19th century zoos were not that compassionate. It was a panther basically in a tiny cage, and it was just sort of pacing around in this tiny cage. And and in the panther's imprisonment, he felt into his own imprisonment and wrote his first poem about the panther, which which is an astonishing poem, um, where he was really, among other things, feeling, as, as David Weiss says, the the bars of his own uh, imprisonment, you know. Race Menikin says quite simply, trauma is about stuckness, you know. Often the places where we're stuck, we're stuck because we're holding on because of some kind of trauma. Debo Zarko says, as a passionate activist for animals, the earth. And accelerated soul evolution i've dedicated my life to ensuring there are no wasted moments. this has taught me to, the delicate balance between being and doing my mission is to inspire simplicity kindness authentic expression and meaning outside the stifling conditions of today's dysfunctional distracted and let 's face it insane cultural mindset by shifting the paradigm from the head to the heart we can live a more compassionate and packed Passionate and compassionate life that include, that excludes no living being. In the end, all you really need to know is that I give a damn. About life, about love, about me, about you. Oh yeah, and I really love to dance. Mm-hmm.